is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. If you have a 401k, if you follow the stock market, you're probably saying something along the lines of, what the? There are fresh <laughs> concerns about the economy as stocks fall heavily on Wall Street. The Dow finishing down more than 1,000 points. The Nasdaq down by 5%. So where exactly are we headed for a downturn or even, you know, the big R, recession? Is the economy overheating and is the Fed handling this the correct way? We'll go in depth. We're now, by the way, into the third year of the pandemic. So where do we stand now? What lessons have we learned and what does the future hold? We are going to talk with CDC Director Dr. Rochelle Rolinsky, who is in the studio with us. We'll be getting her views on when the youngest kids may get their vaccine shots and her take on the abortion controversy in the wake of that uh, leak from the Supreme Court. Could abortion pills change the whole debate if Roe is uh, overturned? And we get more on the war in Ukraine as reports say that U.S. intelligence is helping to take out the Russian generals by pinpointing where they are. We start, though, with stocks tanking on Wall Street. How concerned would should we be about the... State of the Economy. Joining us is Leo Hanian, who's Distinguished Professor of Economics at UCLA and a Senior Fellow at uh, Stanford's Hoover Institution. Lee, thanks for being with us. Uh, yeah, I, I'm sure that some people may have even had stronger things that they were thinking or saying when they looked at the market today. Uh, where are we with this? Yesterday was a great day. People were going, yay, the market's up. Now people are going, oh, my God. Yeah, you know, uh, I received a few emails today with uh, with some epithets saying, "What's what's going on with the stock market?" And yesterday there wasn't, in my opinion, really a, a particularly good reason for it to rally. So I think today is a little bit of a hangover from yesterday's exuberance related um, to the Fed, um, which decided not to increase interest rates by more than half of uh, one half of one percent. But when we look at the economy, you look at the stock market. The real problem is that there are uh, there are three factors that are fundamental for the economy. One is inflation, another is job creation, and the third are the technological innovations made by businesses that make our workers more productive. And of those three, two are at the worst performance levels we've seen in recent memory. So inflation is running at eight to nine percent per year, which is which is awful. And that is awful from the perspective of economic growth. High inflation tends to be associated with low economic growth. And then the technological innovations the businesses are making um, right now are not translating into higher productivity for our workers. Productivity growth fell at about an 8% annual rate last quarter. Um, that was announced just today. And that's the worst performance ever since the Bureau of Labor Statistics kept track, has been keeping track of that stat since 1947. And then the third factor is job creation. And job creation is slowing down substantially as, as we're really reaching the end of restoring the, the, um, the COVID pandemic employment losses. So I think the stock market is looking at the U.S. economy and, and is seeing trouble in terms of inflation and future job creation and technological innovation. And that's why we're seeing the, the sell-off that, uh, that's occurring today, that occurred today, and um, that's 
extremely hard to predict, obviously, but that may well continue. Yeah, let's talk about the R word recession, if this does continue. I was watching one of the financial channels and there was one of the reporters up there saying, you know what, off to the side, some people are whispering that, you know what, it's it's, it's probably going to happen and maybe it won't be that bad of a thing because things are so overheated, things are so wild right now that that's the only way they can cool that we can cool this off. Well, we there's still about a million people that were working before the pandemic that have not come back to work. So that's a potential source of growth. But anytime we think about a recession, we have to understand there's only two ways an economy can grow. We either add more people to payrolls, and there's potential to continue to do that for a couple more months, or we have to make those people a lot more productive. And the second part, making those people more productive through business innovations, that's looking really bad right now. So the chance of a recession, not next month, not the month after that, but in another four to six months, that's very possible, particularly if the Fed doesn't get inflation under control. And, you know, to be honest, perfectly honest, the Fed has really been, in my opinion, behind the curve on this. I was just going to ask, can we ask you that? Well, we're going to ask you anyway. Uh, the question that we've asked, I think, every expert on this show about this, what are the odds that the <laughs> Fed is going to really screw this up? <laughs> well, that, that is uh, that 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 is probably pretty high. It's there. The, the historical track record um, has not been particularly good. And. What really concerns me is that month after month after month last year, the Fed kept seeing inflation numbers of 6%, 7%, 8% annualized basis and kept saying, you know, this is an aberration. This is the supply chain. Give give it another couple of months and it'll come back down to our happy little 2% number. Well, there was really no reason to expect it to to come down. So um, the Fed is now in a really difficult position of starting to tighten, but seeing an economy that's beginning to slow substantially. So this is this is not a good situation for the Fed to be in. And really, the best they can do at this point is really try to get inflation under control um, and for, for the purpose of really accelerating longer-term economic growth. And that may well entail a recession by the summer or that might continue into the fall. It's so hard to, it's so hard to say how, how big of a recession that might be given all the global political issues that we're confronting. But the Fed is really between a rock and a hard place. Um, and at some level, they, they did this to themselves. But they should, they should have reacted much, much sooner and much, much more aggressively last year. Leo Hannian, Distinguished Professor of Economics, UCLA. Senior Fellow, Stanford's Hoover Institution. That's kind of the answer we've been getting from everybody yeah. every time we ask it. Yeah, so it looks like the Fed's going to screw it up. <laughs> yes. That's the bottom we're line. We're weighted heavily into probably. <laughs> so, you know, since the uh, pandemic began, uh, we have not had in-studio guests. Nope. We've been doing everything by Zoom and by phone to keep everything and everyone nice and safe. So it is probably very symbolic right. that our very this first is fitting. Yes. and very fitting that our very first in-studio live guest since the pandemic began is clearly sanctioned now by the CDC because <laughs> <It's> the CDC. <laughs> it is the CDC. <laughs> Joining us is Dr. Rochelle Wilinski, who's director of the CDC. Thank you so much for uh, being with us. As, uh, as we're sitting here, doctor, I was just looking at a figure from NBC News, which was looking at its tally, and they now have a number of a million-plus deaths from COVID just 
in this country. Now, I don't know what the official uh, CDC figure is, what you're looking at, but it is in that neighborhood, right? And with that number of people dead, because I want to look forward, if we can, a little bit, what lessons have you learned, has the CDC learned from the pandemic now going into its third year? Well, the first thing I think we should do is just pause for those million souls that aren't at people's dinner tables. Um, I, I think, you know, all too many times over the last two and a half years, we have seen that tally and it's been a tally and we need to pause and recognize that these are, these are lives lost people, um, who's, who will not see their children get married, their siblings. It, it's just been, it's tragic, right? So I, I think we should not escape this moment and, and just think of it as a number. It's, it's a lot of people. Um, through this, I think one of the things that's been so obvious to me is the frail, underfunded public health infrastructure in this country that got us to this place. Um, the the fact that we don't have a public health workforce that um, across the country, and I don't mean just at the CDC, across the country that was equipped to handle uh, an epidemic, a pandemic of this size, um, our data systems that were not equipped to handle data coming in, reportable diseases to the CDC at a million cases a day, um, a, a laboratory system that was not state of the art across the country that was equipped to handle what needed to be done for genomic surveillance or wastewater surveillance or whatever it may be. So the, the, um, the, I think the important thing that we need to do is never be in this position again, recognize that we were underfunded and too frail. The infrastructure was too weak and to really have long-term sustainable infrastructure in both workforce, in in workforce data and in laboratory infrastructure. So okay, that we, that's what we want. Do we have it? We do not have it right now. How do we, we get it? So uh, part of this is funding and resources, um, and what, that's a lot of what we're working towards now at the CDC. We've made enormous strides in this pandemic. Um, when we had electron, when the pandemic started, we had virtually no electronic case reporting. We now have over ten thousand of our hospital and medical sites that are electronic case reporting. Um, our data systems really need to be interoperable. They need to be standardized so that what is collected in department. Of public health or local department of public health in in X city can actually be um, synthesized and and standardized to Y department of public health, so we can actually cross and compare. So we are doing a lot of that work right now. We do need resources to do that work, and a lot of those resources we are then going to feed back out to states and local jurisdictions so that they can do that work at the local level. We at CDC don't have all the authorities to collect those data, so we rely on de local departments of public health. To to um, to voluntarily uh, report those data. Not all of them do. Not all of our wastewater surveillance sites report their wastewater data. So so it is both making sure we have the infrastructure in place, but then also the authorities to to report. Messaging has been a problem. We can agree on this. Probably, I can count the ways it would take a long time. Do people trust you guys? Um, I think trust in general is hard to come by in this moment. I don't think it's necessarily CDC. I think there's a lot of misinformation and disinformation. People are skeptical about what they read. Um, we are doing a lot of work in this area. One of the things that's been interesting for me to think about in our communications and our strategies for communications, first, who is our audience? Um, 
But also when we came in, when I came in and definitively said we are going to be led by science as we think about what our strategies and our guidance is moving forward, that people heard, well, then it will be black and white and obvious as to what to do. Um, and science is not. And in fact, certainly in a fast moving pandemic with emerging variants, you know, at the speed that they have been emerging, the science has been evolving and the science has been gray. And so I, there, there was this messaging that, of course, if you lead with science, it will be obvious as to what to do. Yeah, it's all going to be better. Well, right. 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 And 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 you can see that uh, what you're saying in manifold ways, I think. Uh, and we've talked about this, Mike and I, on, on our show for the past two plus years. Uh, you know, I, I was in the uh, the Pfizer vaccine study uh, oh, for the, for the thank vaccine. You. <laughs> you're welcome. But, but the reason why I was in it was because I wanted to learn firsthand. I had never done something like that. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to know what it was like to be in a trial and, and to deal with them and to hear firsthand what their interpretation of the data was to whatever degree they were able to, to share that. And because of that insight, I, I can see where people have all these misconceptions about the vaccine. And that's been a problem from day one with this notion that if somebody gets COVID, the vaccine, therefore, is a failure. And we hear it all the time from people who say, well, why should I get a vaccine if my neighbor next door, they got the vaccine, they got boosted even, they still got COVID. And that's not the way these vaccines were designed to work. And the vaccines are actually very, very successful. But why has that message, do you think, not actually sunk in, and it hasn't for so many people. Um, first, thank you for being in the study because we rely on people to be in these studies and to lean in. Second, if there's one message to come out of this, it is get vaccinated and get boosted. Um, that is critically important. It's been interesting to see how it evolved because, I, and I do remember, I remember the moment, I, I was not in this position, but I remember the moment where I was when I got the buzz on my phone that the Pfizer vaccine worked at, what, 94%. It was like goosebumps moment, right? Like, we're going to be okay. Um, um, and it worked to prevent infection um, against the wild type. And so we all leaned in and said, it's going to keep working to prevent infection. Um, and and it worked actually to prevent transmission, too. And so we have this expectation because it worked against that variant at that time. Nobody said the word waning. Nobody said the word severe disease. Um, we were all talking about wild type. And this has been the evolution of science and the evolution of the variants and the evolution of this pandemic and it um, and the evolution of our scientific humility. Right. That we really need to un- further understand um, that, you know, that things could change. And that has been, you know, one of the real challenges in the communication about this. And yet, here we are in this moment that we have this gift of a scientific delivery of a vaccine in a relatively short period of time that does protect people from being in the hospital, that does protect against death. And so that's what we really need to keep our eye on. I think people can mostly follow the emerging variants. We know the epidemiology of this uh, by now. Viruses change. That's been explained. But what explains, uh, in your mind, the apathy with dose number four now because every time there's a new booster it kind of drops and not a lot of people even a third uh, not as many as you would hope were getting them got them and especially not the fourth right so i think um 
you know, first of all, I think we should acknowledge that there's not everybody's apathy is the same, right? Um, and in fact, some people have not rolled up their sleeves for one reason and some for another. And, and we really have to acknowledge the heterogeneity of that and that um, to really understand because people say, well, how do you get people to listen to you? And the real answer is you listen to them, right? And really understand what have their hesitations been. I do think that um, there, it's interesting that we haven't gotten the, the, uptake of the third dose in ways that I thought we would have. Um, you know, in terms of the fourth dose, um, I think, you know, there's there are reasons why people may not have gotten it and reasons why people might have leaned in to get it. And really also, um, not everybody is as strongly recommended to go out and get. Um, and that's for good reason. Um, there are some people who recently had Omicron and we have said, well, if you've had it, then maybe you don't need to lean into that fourth dose. There are some people who say, well, gosh, I really only have one more in me right now. And we'd say, you know, wait until the fall. Um, and there are some people who say, I want a constant infusion of an IV Right. Of a, of a yeah, I'll take one every week in a drive-through, <laughs> yeah. right? Exactly. Yeah. So it really just depends on your appetite for that. Um, and so that's fair. I premised a physician friend of mine that I would ask you this question because his concern is that there's been too much emphasis uh, with the vaccines on antibodies, that uh, there are so many different levels, as you know better than anyone in this room, uh, of immunity. And and my doctor friend's point is that shouldn't we really be looking at the efficacy of these vaccines more in terms of T cells, B cells, and be less concerned about uh, the antibodies? Because those are the headlines that people keep reading. Three months after the vaccine, you know, the the antibody level goes down or goes up or goes sideways when there are so many more intricate measures of immunity, right? Absolutely. Um, and I think the one of the holy grails of this is I, if I could tell you with certainty that with X level of antibody and Y level of T cells, you're protected against Z, then we'd be in great shape. The problem is we actually don't have that correlative protection. And furthermore, we don't have a clinical test that can tell you your B your T cells are working. Um, so the thing that we look at is the antibodies because we can actually measure it. Um, does that necessarily mean that this level of antibody will protect you from that level of disease? It doesn't. But there's, and in fact, it would be great if we had something like that. But the problem is, as I'm sure you realize, you know, look, I mean, medicine to some degree, better or worse, I mean, it's big business, the pharmaceutical companies. Mm -hmm. And so companies like Pfizer, and again, for transparency, transparency purposes, I was in their trial, but still, Pfizer, Moderna, Johnson & Johnson, you name it. You know, look, they all want to make a lot of money, and they are making a lot of money mm -hmm. on their on their vaccines. It and so it it it's the thing I think that some people get hung up on, and in terms of of credibility, where they lose the credibility, is people think, well, are they just using the antibody measurement because, from a business point of view, it works to their advantage, doesn't it? If they can show on a test that two months after the antibodies go down, but if you take another one of our booster shots... People are going to want to get topped off. Right, you right. want to yeah. get topped off. And I think that goes a, a long way in explaining why people, some people anyway, become suspicious of vaccines, of, of medicine, of government. I mean, it all kinds of get, gets rolled into this one big ball. 
Yeah, and I think that that's actually fair, um, a fair discussion. You know, our FDA um, needs to does use the antibody measurements, but not alone. Our so you know the vaccine and the recommendations come from the pharmaceutical companies providing the data to the FDA. Their at um, their external advisory group, academics in the field, having an open and transparent and public discussion about the pros and cons of the data that they're seeing, and then the FDA providing an authorization, and then that comes to the CDC. We have an advisory committee on immunization practices, or ACIP, external academic advisors who are not CDCers, who have an external discussion about how good the data are, um, and then that they provide their advice to me. And that actually has been part of the reason. I mean, it's it's transparent. It's open. It gets talked about on the evening news and on radio shows. Um, and the gray gets discussed. And some would say that the gray is the reason for the confusion. But it is also really critically important, I think, to have that public dialogue so that we are not, as a government or as an advising agency, saying, well, you're just listening to Pfizer's antibody levels. So what do you worry about as we go forward um, with whatever we're seeing now, whether this is an uptick or a wave and then and or, I guess, for the summer? Because every year we've seen a summer surge starts in the south and then moves. So take me through what you see over the next few months. Um so I'm thinking through all of those. In the big picture, if you look at where we were are now going into the summer versus where we were a year ago, we have so much more um, in terms of population immunity. Over 90, 95% of the U.S. population has some immunity for some reason. Is it because they had two doses, one dose, they saw an alpha wave, they saw a Delta variant, but they have some protection? Um, that will help. In general, it may not be, you know, more recent or proximal infection. It may not be a fourth dose, but that will help. We have more vaccines and boosts. We have more testing available and we have more therapeutics available. So, you know, Paxlovid has um, decreased amount of severe disease and hospitalization by 88%. So we have access to many, many more tools than we did a year ago. Well, I'm glad you mentioned Paxlovid because I, I have a personal story about that. <laughs> you went to find it. <laughs> I went to find it, and I needed to because about 12 days after I had the second booster shot, uh, I ended up getting COVID, very minor case. But my doctor said, you know what, just to be on the safe side, you should take the Paxlovid. I'm pronouncing it right, right? Paxlovid. Yeah. 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 And so uh, I went in search of it. It was not easy. And this was only about a month ago now. Uh, I called, uh, I won't mean, oh, you won't mention the names, what the heck. I called CVS, nobody had it. I called Walgreens. Go down the list. <laughs> yeah. You name the drugstore, nobody had it. And I went on the L.A. County. There's a, a website to look at places that supposedly have it. The first three places I called on the list said, no, nope, we don't have it. Meantime, I'm thinking, well, that window is going by, that five-day right, five window. Day right. window. It's like ticking, right? <laughs> yeah, it's ticking. <laughs> you know? And I finally found one a sort of a, 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 a boutique pharmacy in, in Beverly Hills that had it. It was in a tucked away in an office building. You would never know it was there. And they had it. But this was not, you know, back when the drug first came on the market. This was only a month ago in the second largest city in America. And I found it because... 
doing research is what I do. Right. So I, I knew how to do it. And it was still a pain in the you know what till I finally found it. And I'm thinking how many people out there needed it, maybe a lot more than I did, not vaccinated at all, older, more frail. Good luck finding it. Why is it a problem? So I... Um your, yours is not the first story that I've heard like this. Um, my understanding is, well, early on there were there were shortages. There's no question that there were shortages, and we knew that. We knew, and and supply part of it is the drug is hard to make. So as soon as they um, saw that they were going to have an effective trial, they ramped up the the production. But it did take time. We now have plenty of it, and there's been a lot of work over the last month, literally, as we've had more and more supply to distribute it to places and to make it easier to get because you're right you have the resources to be able to find it and many others have do not my understanding um, and i think this announcement just came today is that there was a tenfold increase in how much paxlovid people got just literally in the last month the other thing that we have been working to do and cdc has been very engaged in this is to do outreach to doctors there's been a health alert um, saying this is how you use this drug we've done work with um, we do these coca calls with um, providers. This is how you prescribe it. There are drug-drug interactions. Don't be scared of them, but these are the ones you need to keep an eye out for. Many people have not given this kind of drug before. And it's interesting because, you know, over... um, when new drugs come out, and <laughs> historically this has been shown, when new drugs come out, by the time they actually get to community, it's often by the time like the, the patents have expired. We're trying to put pedal to the metal, teach all of the clinicians out there how to give this new drug that has drug-drug interactions, but we can do so safely. And we've but, been but, is tra- it, but is it also because the companies like Pfizer can't go out with a sales force the way they do for authorized drugs? That that is true too, right? We have relied on that from from um, our pharmaceutical industries to to do the advertising, to do some of that education. They can't do that with the authorized drugs. So we've been doing a lot of that work. And in fact, just today, FDA put forward a checklist for providers of these are the things you should be thinking about as you prescribe Paxlovid. These, you know, yes, your patients may have may be on drugs that'll interact. These are ones to think about. Here's the checklist, and here's how you think about them to really expand the use um, and access to Paxlovid. When you flew out, how many masks did you see on the airplane? At least one, because I was wearing one. <laughs> the whole time, <laughs> the entire time. Sip of water. Um, I did take a sip of water, but okay. I, you know, I Long put flight. it down for my mask and I put it back up. Um, but our- your agency is now again recommending that people wear masks, right, on, on planes. Our agency never stopped recommending. Okay, so because okay. it's interesting because the headline is sort of today, CDC is again recommending. It's like a, it's a re-recommendation, right, on the day that it would have maybe sunsetted, which it's, was just okay, a couple so, days so ago. You're, you're continuing right? your, your, right. your thing. So, so the, you know, this was a legal issue where the order, with the enforcement was vacated. Um and we felt it really important that the American people know that our recommendations have never changed, that in our travel corridors, in our indoor travel corridors, we at CDC have always believed and and have always recommended that um, masking should continue. And, you know, where are we in this moment? And I think, Mike, you asked this earlier, is um, we have an increasing number of cases right now. Um, we're lower than we had been through much of this pandemic, but still at about 60,000 a day. Um, 
we have a slightly increasing number of hospitalizations. Again, not nearly as high as we've been in the past, but we're watching it very carefully. And in this moment is not the time we feel that we should be taking off masks in our travel corridors. The Justice Department is going to appeal that ruling because CDC wants them to. You want them to. But there's no stay ordered on that ruling, so the masks haven't come back on. Why not push for that? If it's really that important to have the masks, make people put the masks back on until it's all sorted out. So we are I'm not going to talk about sort of what's happening in the courts right now. But what I will say is at this moment, um, we feel that our guidance should reflect where we that CDC says masking should occur. Um, And I'm going to leave the legality of this to the Justice Department. The other department. All right, CDC Director Dr. Michelle Walensky is uh, still with us, uh, staying with us for the rest of the hour here on In-Depth. 145, traffic every 10 minutes on the fives, brought to you by Family Dollar, Tom Tran. All right, we'll start with the Sigler over on the eastbound side of the 91. It is still very slow. They're saying just about now-ish they're going to try to reopen the number two, three, four, and 5 lanes. But it was an overturned big rig. There was gravel all over the place, so that East 91 is backed up basically from Wilmington Avenue. Eastbound side of the 105 also slows back near the 110. That's going to stay busy all the way over towards Long Beach Boulevard. There was an earlier crash on the westbound side at Long Beach Boulevard that's clearing out of the way, so traffic is recovering there. Let's check in with Brian Douglas. He's taking a look at the Hollywood Freeway at the Southern California Toyota Dealers 101 Jam Camp. So we had a crash left lane northbound of Alvarado Street. Looks like it's still affecting your drive, so really tough out of downtown. Pass Alvarado, your drive actually looks great up into the valley. Southbound side's uh, always tough, and right now things load up at Western stays heavy into downtown. Stop by Family Dollar for everything you need to celebrate mom. Make her feel special with balloons, cards, sweets, decorations, and scented candles. So many ways to say I love you all at a great value. There's more from mom at Family Dollar. Your next report, 155. More reports more often from the CarsonToyota.com 24-hour traffic center. KNX News 97.1 FM. This is KNX In-Depth. Mike Simpson and Charles Feldman. Well, CDC Director Dr. Rochelle Walensky is still with us. Uh, let me ask you the same question that we asked Dr. Fauci, I think the last time we had him on. What keeps you up at night? <laughs> I think the better question was allows me to sleep. But, <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I mean. Yeah, what? yeah no, of course. I, I think um, what we're seeing, it's interesting what we're seeing right now with um, with Omicron, which we did not see with any of these prior variants. And that is these subvariants are emerging, right? Um, so BA1, BA2, BA2121, BA4, BA5, all of these subvariants are emerging, which we hadn't really heard that kind of subvariant language with any of our prior surges. Um, as we see these subvariants, I think that what's going to happen is the amplitude of the, the cases will not be as high. We won't see as much disease as we had potentially in prior Omicron surge. Um, what keeps me up at night, though, is some Greek letter that we haven't heard of that um, could reach us. Um, You know, when I think about what gives me concern of any new variant, um, how transmissible is it? How severe is it? And will it evade our diagnostics, our therapeutics, and our vaccines? Um, And those possibilities are not off the table. Um, We haven't seen anything yet, and I'm, you know... But but, but you make me wonder, though, because I remember when the vaccines were first introduced, the the messenger RNA ones, so the Mm -hmm. Moderna and the, the Pfizer, one of the things that we were told, the public, 
was that the beauty, if you will, of these kind, this new platform of vaccine was the ability to change it relatively quickly if there was a, a new variant of concern. That being said, so the Omicron variant emerged and, you know, the sons and daughters of, Om- of the original Omicron. Why isn't there already a, a messenger RNA Omicron specific vaccine on the market? Well, so there is um, actually, and it's not on the market, I should say. It's certainly under studies. So the, the, I think the bigger question is, is that the best one to lead us to the future? Um, if we were to vaccinate everyone with an Omicron-specific variant, would that provide the breadth and depth of protection that we would need for Greek letter unknown? And in fact, that's actually the activity that's going on right now at the FDA is if we are going to lean into a need for a booster in the fall, what is the best, if you will, flavor of that booster? Um, is it the wild type? Is it alpha? Is it beta? Is it delta? Is it Omicron? And it doesn't look like the Omicron one is going to give us the breadth and depth that we that's the broadest. And so that's actually the work that's going on exactly right now. Can you mix and match? So Bundle them together. You can. And in fact, that's the other question is what's the recipe for um, the best the best, you know, should we put two together? Should we put three together? Should we, you know, double down on a singular one? Um, and that's the work that's going on exactly as we speak. Parents who might be listening, uh, you know what they're worried about. I they're do. worried about their, their their kids and they read uh, and hear about all kinds of, you know, one day there is going to be a vaccine and there's not. And it's going to be two shots, maybe three shots. Maybe it is effective. Maybe it's not as effective. What can you tell them? Um, first of all, I can tell them that um, this has been hard, and um, I'm. It's been really hard to be the parent of a young child at a time when so many other people have been eligible for vaccines and they have not. So I, it's. I just want to say I know it's been hard. Um, two is. We can't cut corners for these little kids, right? We have to do the due diligence, and it's been hard to do that due diligence. Three is all the data we've seen so far is it will be safe. So that's really important. And But it's been harder to get the effectiveness there, the efficacy data. And so um, we now have a submission that has been started by Moderna, um, and we've seen a peek at what Pfizer has and when they initially started theirs. And so I'm really hopeful that in the weeks and months ahead, we will have something for these um, exhausted parents of these little kids. Even if the level isn't as high as we would all wish, is the idea maybe just give them something, give them some immunity, because some of the even super small ones can't wear masks. So if you can get them at least a little bit of protection, hey, that's better than nothing. Right. And that may very well be among the things that we are looking at. One of the things that's going to be harder to prove, because fortunately, children do, you know, haven't had the level of hospitalization, we might be able to say, well, there's a, um, a level of protection against infection. It's not as high as we might want. But we believe that that level of protection against infection would also lead to a level of protection against hospitalization and severe disease. It's just in this current moment, it's very hard to prove. Let me uh, go because I think we're going to we're running out of our, our time. Let me let me go off topic now and see if I can get you to to dip your toes into the controversial waters of the Supreme Court decision uh, <laughs> involving uh, Roe v. Wade and abortion. Because if it turns out that that draft opinion uh, is the way that the court finally uh, rules, and if it becomes 
difficult, impossible maybe in half the states in this country for women to get an abortion. It is a health issue for women. It's a political issue. It's also very much a health issue. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that. Um, I think it's not just a health issue. It's an access issue. And so much of what we have been doing over the last year while I've been at the CDC and that I've done over the last 20 years through my career is to work towards um, ensuring access for people who otherwise didn't have access. Quite honestly, I think in those 25 states that you talked about, people with resources, women with resources will get the, what they need and people without will not. And um, so I think it's an equity issue. It's an access issue. Um, and it may very well be a morbidity and mortality issue, quite tragically. Yeah. Does does the level of abortions actually drop when you put these laws into place or you, you take away the laws or does it just get more dangerous for women looking for them? Um, I, yes. Both. Likely both. Yeah, I'm not convinced it's more the former than the latter. I think it's probably um, just that they're not getting the safe access to them. And quite honestly, I think it has implications that we don't even fully understand. Um, you know, OBGYN programs and training programs need to be able to train in the safe ability to terminate a pregnancy. Um, and yet they are not – I mean, I'm not saying that they're, they're doing this because these are requested by women. They need to be able to do it. Um for for you know whether you need it for safety or whatever whatever the purpose they need to be trained in this um, so I think it has implications in in training of care in care and access to care and in long term maternal mortality um, and in long term um, morbidity and mortality for women. Doctor, thank you for taking the time to be with us. Appreciate it. Yeah, lovely to be here. Thank, thank you. you. Dr. Rosalewski, director of the CDC, with us here on In Depth. To the war in Ukraine now, the battle for Mariupol may be coming to its final stages. The last defenders trying to hold off the Russian forces. At the same time, heavy fighting reported all along the Eastern Front. And reports today say that U.S. military intelligence has helped the Ukrainians pinpoint and kill Russian generals. Joining us now is Russia expert Andrew Jenks, a professor at Cal State Long Beach. Thanks for being with us. So, you know, probably almost every week in the past few, someone has said, uh, we're now entering a new phase of this uh, war in Ukraine. So the question I guess I'm going to ask is, are we now entering a new phase in this war? Well, that's a, you know, it's a, it's always a risky business to try to predict the future. But I think one thing is certain, and that is that uh, the positions are hardening on all sides. Uh, the lethal um, firepower that uh, NATO and the United States are projecting into Ukraine uh, is ever increasing. Uh, and the determination to not compromise on all sides is also increasing. And all that, for me, that, that spells out a new phase of continued warfare and increasing um, loss of innocent life. What do you make of us being a few days away from this date that everybody said Vladimir Putin was going to try to mark by declaring either some type of victory or then that kind of transformed into maybe he'll actually declare full war on Ukraine instead of this special military operation uh, so he can have a draft and all, all those things that come along with that. So are either of those two likely or likelier than the other one? Well, that is possible, I think. I mean, it's hard to say without having inside intelligence or information. But one thing is for sure, and that is that uh, May 9th uh, is a sacred holiday. And it is a holiday in which national security and the military is um, celebrated. 
So it makes perfect sense that uh, May 9th would be an occasion for trying to whip up patriotic sentiment and perhaps deepening the war even more than it already is. Although at this point, Russia is all in, as is Putin. Well, we're pretty much, except for boots in the ground, if we're not all in, we're certainly more in than we were last week. Yes. Now, this reminds me so much of the situation in Afghanistan. The Soviet Union, of course, invaded Afghanistan in uh, uh, in 1979. And when it did so, the United States uh, began to funnel aid to the Mujahideen uh, in order to resist the Soviets. The first goal uh, was really to cause the Soviets pain. But as the Mujahideen succeeded more, the goal shifted to victory. And I think there's an increasing sense in the United States that um, that perhaps it's possible that there could be victory in this situation. And for me, that's kind of ominous because um, it means that uh, we will be increasing uh, the amount of aid we provide uh, with the goal of having victory. And Putin himself is all in and he will accept nothing but victory. Uh, that kind of dynamic um, uh does not bode well for a quick end to this war. Well, how does victory come to him? And again, no one can get inside of his head, but is it, you know, he gets even more into chemical weapons, biological, he, he full front, or is it victory in the sense that, you know what, he holds these um, sham referendums in the territories he's got control of and says, well, this is now Russia, so look at my victory. I have carved out the pieces I wanted to. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the optimal scenario in some cases. And isn't that sad that uh, that uh, the best thing we can hope for is that Putin is satisfied with carving off, slicing off the eastern provinces of uh, of Ukraine, combining that with um, with Crimea uh, and with Odessa and Mariupol and these other areas. uh, And then, you know, leaving and declaring victory uh, while installing puppet um, governors. Uh, but I'm not sure that that's possible. And it's not possible because I don't think that uh, that Ukrainians and Zelensky uh, would now be willing to accept that. I think at a certain point they were willing to accept some sort of compromise of territory, but they're not. So in some ways, this is not even in the hands of Putin anymore. Uh, it also depends on what the Ukrainians are willing to do. And what I see right now is that the Ukrainians are completely unwilling to make any compromise. They want victory. Russia expert Andrew Jenks, professor at Cal State Long Beach. Thanks. It's estimated that more than half of the abortions across the country are now conducted using medication. Women take two pills to end their pregnancies. Access to those pills is set to be a new battleground if Roe v. Wade is struck down by the Supreme Court. Joining us now is Rachel Rabouche, law professor and interim dean of the Temple University Beasley School of Law. Rachel, thank you for being with us. So we did a little bit of a, a setting the stage there. Can you fill in some more for us? Two pills, but how do people get them? When? And then the popularity, especially in states that already have some sort of restrictions, because people will turn to these. Sure. So um, thanks for having me. Uh, it's actually two drugs. It's one pill that you take, and then 24 or 48 hours later, you take four uh, pills. That's misoprostone and misoprostol. And um, it's increasingly popular because um, of changes in the law and changes in the practical access to abortion. So the FDA used to require that patients go physically to a healthcare facility and pick up these pills. Um, but now, with the change in the rules, 
people can have those pills mailed to them. And so we're going to see a really big change in access because of the ability to uh, uh, receive these pills in the mail. Uh, So lots of folks are talking about um, not just the expanding network of telehealth for abortion care, but also it's very hard to track down pills once they once they are in the mail, uh, it's very hard to figure out whose hands they end up in. Okay, so for those people who are anti-abortion and are in a celebratory mood, uh, I suspect, uh, <laughs> yeah. on the notion that Roe v. Wade uh, may end up being the, the actual uh, Supreme Court decision in, in another month or so, uh, is the next goal what? Would, would, do you think they would be satisfied with just that? Or do they move to make the acquisition of these abortion pills in and of itself illegal? 